What did Frederick Summers say, the photographer? He said, we're forever walking around the world searching for images we carry within ourselves. And to me, that's resonance. And it doesn't matter whether our photographs are autobiographical, whether they're documentary about the outer world. We're looking for moments that resonate on a deeper rather than superficial level. By that, I mean, we're not looking for eye candy. We're looking for something on a deeper level. Welcome to the Archipelago Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Morton. So today I have the great pleasure of chatting with David Ulrich, author of several books, including his newest release, The Mindful Photographer, Awake in the World with a Camera. David's new book shows how photography can be an inner practice that leads you more fully into a rich engagement with the world and a platform for sharing your questions, observations, and discoveries. It's both a way of light and a way of life. David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And Sean, thank you so much for having me. This is actually the the first book interview that I'll be doing. The book was just released yesterday. Oh, amazing. Wow, wow, wow. Um, listen, David, I, I got to tell you, the book is is truly captivating and inspiring. I found the book to be incredibly full of insights. And, and one I particularly love, and, and this is a quote from the book here, is photography is unique in that it asks that it asks for both an inward look and an outward gaze simultaneously. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that quote? Yes, I think the thing that we have to be aware of is that, you know, the world certainly exists outside of ourselves. But all of our responses to the world take place within. All of our responses do not take place in the great outdoors of the outer world. And hidden in plain sight in what I would call part of the photographic canon is this particular quote from Cartier-Bresson. In the 1930s, he published a book called The Decisive Moment. Mm -hmm. And the introduction to The Decisive Moment has become part of the literature of the photographic canon for the past, you know, almost a century. Yeah. And he he writes, I'm going to quote, I believe that through the act of living, the discovery of oneself is made concurrently with the discovery of the world around us, which can mold us, but which can also be affected by us. A balance must be established between these two worlds, Hmm. the one inside us and the one outside us. Hmm. As a result of a constant reciprocal process, both of these worlds come to form a single one. And it is this world that we must communicate, end quote. Hmm. So for me, photography is one eye is turned inward and one eye is turned outward. We're looking at the world, we're observing events, people, and we're staying in touch with our own internal responses. And a moment comes 
where we sense a unity in the picture, or we sense a shift of someone's facial expression, and something comes alive, and click, we click the shutter. Yeah. So I really think it is when those two worlds, the inner and outer, come together, that we make strong and compelling photographs. David, I, 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 hearing you say this makes me wonder about your own path. Mm-hmm. And and your sort of, I guess, awareness of that reality. And was this something that, you know, just sort of grew organically through your experience as a photographer? Or was there, you know, to quote Bresson, what, Cartier-Bresson, was there a decisive moment when you sort of came to this realization? There were uh, two decisive moments, actually. And uh, the first was, When I was a young photographer, I was studying photojournalism at Kent State University in Ohio. And I witnessed and photographed the events surrounding the death of four students from National Guardsmen's bullets. Wow. That had a really powerful impression on me. My photojournalism teacher was telling us, you must remain impartial. And I couldn't. You know, the emotion I felt in watching my peers get shot and killed by my peers. Don't forget the National Guardsmen were just people that joined the Guard to avoid going to Vietnam. So it was a horrific event, and it shifted my, my inside. And I began to recognize that what was needed in culture was an expansion of consciousness that that alone could change society. And I intuited, I was too young at the time to know this, but I intuited that art and photography could help in that process. That was the first decisive moment. The second was when I was a young man of 33, I lost, completely lost, my right physical eye in an impact injury. So I'm blind on my right side, and that was my dominant eye. Right. So when I say one eye is turned inward and one eye is turned outward, that's a natural and permanent condition for me. But ironically, losing an eye was everything you think it would be. It was awful. It was traumatic. It was scary. But it was also like the Zen master stick you know, where they they whack the student on the side of the head and the ego is broken free. I really began to have a whole new perspective of the world after that event. I don't want to say it was easy. It took years for this perspective to emerge. But it really helped me understand that seeing comes as much from the mind as it does from the eyes. That's beautiful. Um, you you follow up that idea with with another uh, another beautiful line. I'm going to read this back to you. With its reliance on setting and being in the moment, photography is a potent metaphor for how we might live our lives. I, I'd love you to elaborate on that a little bit because I think that's just that's just beautiful. Well, you know, in in Buddhism and other spiritual traditions. Um, one of the aims, one of the goals, if you will, of the practice 
is what I would call a state of presence. You're present to the moment, to what's outside of you. You're also present to the moment of what's inside of you. And I think that that expansion of awareness that photography can engender is is a model and is a uh, a metaphor for how we might live our lives and be present to to our lives, to other people, to the environment. For God's sakes, we need to be more present to the environment. And what did Dorothea Lange say? She said, uh, a photographer, uh, no, she said, a camera is an instrument that teaches people how to see without a camera, <laughs> hmm. which, which I think is a great quote. Yeah, yeah. There, you know, there's, there's a really touching chapter early on in the book. And, and uh, th- th- this one is called Seek Resonance. And, and I'll tell you, yeah. David, I, I've, I've actually, I've read parts of that to other photographers because it, it moved me. I mean, the story was moving, but the idea, the idea of, of finding resonance of seeking resonance, I thought was just, it was sort of a little bit of an aha moment for me in that it sort of changed the way that I think of what, you know, quote, what makes my heart beat faster. Uh, I'd love you to talk about that idea because I think it's a powerful one and, and it's a great one to think about uh, as as artists, as photographers? Well, let me start by talking about Minor White. Minor White was a highly influential photographer and teacher at, at mid-century. He was one of the founders and the principal editor of Aperture Magazine, which still exists, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he spent 40 or 50 years of his life uh, studying and teaching the art of seeing. What I did with him, um, I worked with him for six years. The last year of his life, I was an assistant, a literary assistant, helping him work on what was called the visualization manual, which was the result of his, his teaching over the past 40 years on the art of seeing. Regrettably, that book never got published. But the last weekend of his cogent life. He was traveling in Arizona and London to give workshops. He stopped in Cleveland, which was my family home on the way back to Boston, where he lived, to visit a couple of us. And I had the impression that that weekend was like his final gesture to us. He wanted to go out for a drive on Sunday afternoon. And we drove around and found this little park. And he sat me down on a park bench and he said those words. He said, seek resonance in your life and work. You will not be disappointed. Mm-hmm. And it felt like last words. Yeah. The very next day he had a massive heart attack, which eight months later did kill him. Yeah. But the idea of resonance you know, who are we on a deep fundamental level? If you're going to get married, let's say I want to get married. Do I walk out in the street and just find the first age appropriate, gender appropriate person and say, hey, let's get married? 
<laughs> no. We are seeking resonance. Yeah. We're seeking people that vibrate with us on the most fundamental level. And I would argue the same with images. We're looking for images. We're looking for a way of working that resonates with us. You know, where like attracts like. Mm -hmm. um, what did Frederick Summer say, the photographer? He said, we're forever walking around the world searching for images we carry within ourselves. And to me, that's resonance. Yeah. You know, whether, and it doesn't matter whether our photographs are autobiographical, whether they're documentary about the outer world, we're looking for moments that resonate on a deeper rather than superficial level. By that, I mean, we're not looking for eye candy. Mm -hmm. We're looking for something on a deeper level. Other than that, it's a mystery. I don't know how I can define it, actually. Mm -hmm. I think we have to find it ourselves, absolutely. Right. Um, how important do you think beginner's mind is for photographers? That's a really good question. Um, when I teach in art school, I notice one consistent phenomenon. When people come into art school, they're making powerful but unpolished work. You know, their work is innocent. It's naive. It's spontaneous. They're responding directly to the moment from who they are. Mm -hmm. Then they enter, if you will, a tunnel. And that tunnel is when they study photo history. They study all the technical things. They study the darkroom or Photoshop. And then something is lost in their work. Their work becomes mannered. It becomes um, formal and even stilted. Mm -hmm. And then later on, when they become seniors or graduate students, they can have a return of that innocent, authentic vision, but they can combine it with the power of the adult mind, the power of learning, mm -hmm. that's when something really starts to happen. So I think beginner's mind is important. We need to stay open and innocent and childlike, but we also need to ally it with adult mind, adult learning, and a solid grasp of the tools and techniques. You know, there's something, one more thing, Children's work is marvelously creative, yeah. but they don't have the rigor. They don't know when to stop. They do something wonderful. Then they just keep drawing and drawing and drawing. <laughs> it's the adult mind that has the rigor, yeah. that knows limitations and knows when to stop. I believe there's a, a part in your book where you talk about, uh, and I, I think you were quoting someone about how, you know, once you've gone and, gotten the photo that you want, then you can really start to, to play with a subject, right? Right. That was, I was a, uh, how do I, a Boy Scout merit badge photography class. I must have been, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. <clears throat> My first photography teacher said, 
once you've made the photograph you set out to make, now is the time to start exploring. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be very true. My basic uh, premise is that people don't take enough pictures. A beginning photographer will go to a scene and take two or three pictures and walk away and say, I've got it. They think they know, and that's arrogant. A professional photographer will go to a scene and they know that they don't know. And they'll take 50, 60, or 100 pictures because they understand the necessity of exploring the subject. And something else happens, just like in athletics. You know, if you start exercising after 10 or 15 minutes, the endorphins will be released. When the endorphins are released, you're more fluid, you're more alive, you're more present. It's the same with photography. If you work into a subject, you know, and shoot some film or digital captures, um, you get into it. A kind of engagement arises. I never tell people this, but when I used to do commercial photography and I would photograph models that were strangers during the film era, the first two rolls of film, I didn't put film in my camera. <laughs> Because I saw it as just a warm-up. <laughs> right. I, I think that that's a probably a really good idea, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if speaking from personal experience, as, you know, someone who does portraiture as well, I, I yeah, it's always right at the very end of the session. Then you just feel like, okay, things are starting to gel and, and you know, you sort of... Uh, you're, you're quote, resonating with each other and, and you're making that connection. And then I think that's when the magic happens. It's interesting. Absolutely. You know, in teaching photography, statistically, in the film era, a, the largest number of successful pictures were found on frame number 36. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the roll. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, talking about shooting a lot, you also talk about shooting with a cell phone. And, and right. that, that it can, uh, I think you say it can free your eye. Right. You know, for a lot of my career, I worked with a view camera, a five by seven inch view camera on a tripod with individual sheet film holders. You know, at best I could carry 10 or 15 holders around during a day. Yeah. So I, I longed for a handheld camera. I love today's digital cameras that can give me view camera quality with something slung around my neck. But the value of a cell phone, it is with you always. And what's wonderful is being able to sketch out ideas, being able to pursue, you know, stray impressions. I might see something in the grocery store Mm -hmm. and, and put my cart, my grocery cart aside and take pictures for a few minutes. I think the cell phone is a wonderful freeing tool, but I also think it can be a scary addictive device also. Yeah, <laughs> that's true, yeah. And we have to walk the line between addiction and freedom. That brings me to something else you talk about a little bit in this book, and that's Instagram. What are your, what are your thoughts on Instagram? Well, as a platform, 
I think Instagram is amazing. It's a publishing platform. You can publish pictures with a global reach to anyone in the world. But with that said, I think the way many, if not most people use Instagram is almost sinful. You know, they use it for self-admiration, for narcissism, for as a tool to to improve their insecurities. Um, what if, what if we understood the power of Instagram as a publishing platform <clears throat> and people started chronicling the environmental damage in their own communities? Mm-hmm. Or what if the Instagram influencers would understand the necessity of diverse representation mm-hmm. and photograph people of different races, different colors, different body shapes. Yeah. But that's not what we have. We have thin white people yeah. photographing their expensive travels, their expensive food, and their expensive clothing. And that, to me, is, a, is an abuse yeah. of what could be a magnificent platform. And don't get me wrong, I think a lot of people are using it in very hum- humanistic ways. Yep. There's there's more there's more we can do for sure with it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, I, I use it as a marketing tool for my book, so I I'm not immune from using it for promotion. Sure. <laughs> I think you you talk about using it as a sort of a I mean, a, a journal, right? Like a daily journal, yes, of, yes. Uh, you know, for, for the art and, 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 and for learning photography. Yeah, you know, Stephen Shore, who just had a couple years of retrospectives at, at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, he regularly uses Instagram as a journal, yeah. publishes the pictures, and it's a wonderful insight yeah. into his own creative process. Yeah. It's uh, there's there's another bit in the book uh, that I love that I that I resonate with, and I, I'm going to say resonate a lot. I think in this interview, <laughs> it's a great word. That's fine. <laughs> uh, but that's the idea of we are what we eat. You want to talk about that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think it's yeah, relevant to the sort of the conversation we're just having now. Well, you know, it's much like our physical bodies, the quality of food that we take in has a lot to do with our health and with who we are on a physical, emotional level. Yeah. I think it's the same with images. Yeah. The images we take into the senses are like food. They can nourish us. They can do many things. Um, they can also expand our consciousness and make us aware of things that are happening in different parts of the world. There was a photographer that, um, you know, left his home, went to the Polish border, actually went into Ukraine and, and photographed on the trains. Yeah. The immigrants, um, the refugees. Yeah. And what a powerful project. These were painful to look at. Yeah. But, you know, they they were instructive, informative, and moving about a pressing issue that is taking place in our world today. Yeah. I feel that 
pictures have the capacity to change our states, to make us more conscious, to make us more alive and more present. You know, Ed, there's there's a there's a quote that I absolutely adore, and it's just it's very much in the same vein. It's from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's like I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I've eaten, even so they have made me. And <laughs> it's exactly you know it's the same idea like that. Just that importance of the the influences of, I mean we're bombarded with images in this day and age, right? And I think it is important to curate uh you know what we consume visually as it, it all affects us for sure yeah i think we need to be mindful of um the fact that we are being bombarded and many of the images we take in on a daily basis are quite literally designed to manipulate us in some way yeah they're designed to uh sell us something they're designed to um, addict us, as in the case of social media. And I think that all of these impressions have great power, but they can also degrade the way we see the world if we're not careful. Yeah. I mean, we live in a capitalistic consumer society. And some image feeds would lead us to believe that that's what images are about. Yeah. You also talk in this book about visual language and that if, if people want to communicate effectively, that they, they need to learn visual language. Do you, do you want to explain that a little bit? Yes. <clears throat> In addition to teaching in college, I, I teach in a number of community venues. And I can always tell in the first critique of any class who has a background in the visual language. One of the beautiful things about technology is that it's a great democ democrat democratizing force. Mm -hmm. Anybody can pick up a camera today and make professional-level photographs. Yeah. But the visual language does have its own grammar syntax. You know, you can evaluate pictures based on the visual language in terms of what they're communicating and how they're communicating. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that it's really important for photographers and artists to study, have a basic awareness, a basic study of the visual language and how it can be used to support our, our communication goals. Mm -hmm. And it's very evident when that knowledge is not there. So in your opinion, do you think, do you think gear matters? Do I think what matters? Gear. Like the type of camera you're using? Tough question, because it's a very nuanced answer. Mm -hmm. Yes and no. I think the most important gear is the type of gear that works with the photographer's intent and vision. 
that's why I chose to use the view camera for many years. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, many great photographs have been made with low cost and expensive cameras. So I think gear matters, but I think the lust for gear does not matter. You know, I think an intelligent choice of camera, lens, um, dark room or Photoshop or Lightroom, I think we have to make those choices and those are important. Yeah. But I think when the tools become more important than the image, then it's a problem. Yeah. In the early days of Photoshop, I used to say, you know, in the early 1990s, I used to say the development of the program was more creative than anything that's being done on Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was true. Yeah. It's not true today, of course. I mean, people use Photoshop and Lightroom as valuable tools. Yeah. Um, but we don't study technique for its own sake. We study technique because it helps us to communicate. Yeah. D David, what's your favorite camera right now? Uh, <laughs> uh, I have two answers to that. All right. My view camera that I haven't used in five years <laughs> um, is a Deerdorf. It's yeah. handmade from sustainable wood. Woods. It was uh, mentioned by Saturday Review as one of the best made products of the 20th century. Hmm. And I love that camera. Yeah. I don't use it anymore. With that said, I had a major aha moment in the past few years when I switched from Canon to Sony equipment. Hmm. And I, I really um, find Sony cameras today to be extraordinary in terms of dynamic range and resolution. So the camera I'm using most frequently now is a high-resolution Sony. Yeah. And I have an old Leica film camera, and there's nothing more sexy <laughs> then yes. the sound of that quiet shutter going off. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I also want to know who inspires you, David. Who and, inspires and, me today? Yeah, and it doesn't have to be, you know, in the photography world. But, but yeah, who, who inspires you? Good question. Um, well, let me start with the photography world. Sure. I'm really interested in um, several photographers' work. I like a lot of the work that Sally Mann is doing with her 8x10 view camera and mm. wet collodion printing. Yeah. I love the work of an African-American photographer named Dewald Bay, hmm. who's photographing the evidence of racism in the South. Hmm. I love the environmental, environmentally inspired work by... Um, Todd Hito, mm -hmm. who recently published a book called The Bright Black World. And, and those are um, uh, inspirational and influential on yeah. my work. Yeah. And one influence that I keep going back to is the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. And another poet I had the privilege to to call a friend was William Merwin who lived on Maui and his poetry and his 
his creative life was a great inspiration on me. Hmm. That's beautiful. If there could be just one thing, what do you hope people will take away from this book of yours? If there could be just one thing, I would like to suggest that what I felt as a 20-year-old at Kent State is something that photography can do and do well. And that is, it can assist us in expanding and enlarging our consciousness. Our consciousness of the world and our consciousness of ourselves. I feel that the only way that the world is going to change and can be fixed, if you will, in terms of our environmental problems, our social problems, our foreign foreign war problems, the only way that's going to change is if people, societies, grow in the level of consciousness that they have. I know that sounds vague. I don't know any other better way to describe it. I think it's a great explanation. David, the, the book is fantastic. It's, it's insightful. It's truly inspiring. Um, and, and I love that we could feel that you really are trying to get, get photographers and, and to teach photographers how to you know, deepen their, their engagement with the world. And, and that's evident in you know, what you've shared with us today and, and in this, this incredible book. So I just want to thank you for, for taking some of your time and sharing a bit about that with us and, uh, and wish you all the best. And, and yeah, just, just thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and speaking about it with us today. Well, thank you, Sean, very much for having me. And I would like to reach out to the listeners. Um, please feel free to contact me through my website, www.creativeguide.com. I'm, I'm always open to dialogue. That's fantastic. We'll definitely add that into the show notes so people can, can hit the link and get in touch with you there. Thank you so much, David. Okay, thank you, Sean. All right. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about David Ulrich and his new book, The Mindful Photographer, please check out the links in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you by Archipelago Presets, developers of innovative Lightroom presets and profiles that push the boundaries of creativity, helping you take your photography to the next level. Be sure to visit archipelagopresets.com and use the code PODCAST20 to save 20% on your next purchase. Thanks again. Until next time.